When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Persons coinciding with the ambitious views of Virginia have attempted to depreciate the meritorious patriot who was brought forward by the Virginias, whom the most unanimous voice of the American people placed in the second office of government, and on whom would constitutionally devolve the duties of President of the United States in case of the death or resignation of the Venerable Jefferson. To the allegation of unfitness resulting from his age, adduced by this juvenile Franklin, I reply, It looks too much like an unfair attempt to sweep off from the political stage a man of sterling worth eminently qualified to serve his country in the perilous times which threaten it. For there is almost an equal chance that if propositions from Great Britain or other events do not put it in our power to raise the embargo before the 1st of October, we will lose the presidential election. I think that at this moment, the Western states, Virginia, South Carolina, and perhaps Georgia, are the only sound states, and that we will have a doubtful contest in every other. I was born an American. I have passed the meridian of the life of man, and during my whole life have been the attentive and careful witness of every important transaction of independent America. Although some events have occurred during the last 40 years, which I could have earnestly wished might not have happened, never until I read these debates and heard the language of the administration did I feel myself completely humbled, for I had not before seen reason to doubt the integrity of my country. It is very gratifying to me that the general course of my administration is approved by my fellow citizens, and particularly that the motives of my retirement are satisfactory. I part with the powers entrusted to me by my country, as with a burden of heavy bearing. But it is with sincere regret that I part with the society in which I have lived here, It has been the source of much happiness to me during my residence at the seat of government, and I owe it much for its kind dispositions. I shall ever feel a high interest in the prosperity of the city and an affectionate attachment to its inhabitants. Anonymous. Albert Gallatin. Rufus King. Thomas Jefferson. As President Jefferson had shared with numerous friends and colleagues early on in his second term that he had no intent to stand for election to a third, the year 1808 was destined to be the last full year of his presidency. Having been in office for the better part of the past decade, there was much that Jefferson could point to as successes for the nation. Just looking at a map, much had changed since his time in office, as indicated both by the addition of the Louisiana Purchase as well as the new detail that could be included in maps of those western lands following the expeditions that Jefferson had championed. American commerce and trade was freely flowing up and down the Mississippi River, while further to the northeast, the North River Steamboat, an innovative new type of ship utilizing steam propulsion, had been put into service on the Hudson River running between Albany and New York City in 1807. Other technological advances included prototype torpedoes that had been perfected and demonstrated in the United States during Jefferson's presidency. The nation had avoided war with Spain, 
and the president hoped that he and his cabinet had developed a means through the embargo to avoid war with Britain so that the nation's population could continue to climb, the nation's manufacturing and agriculture could continue to prosper, and the young nation could set in roots which would help it to grow into a strong empire of liberty. Even in his personal life, Jefferson had made progress, having made the last payment on the debt that had fallen onto his shoulders upon the death of his father-in-law in 1773. Though Jefferson still had plenty of debt of his own, this was at least a ray of hope that, for him as well as the nation, they might finally escape from the burden of indebtedness. The reality, though, is that the end of Jefferson's presidency was filled with numerous challenges for both the outgoing president and his ultimate successor. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As you heard, I have numerous folks to thank for providing the intro quotes for this episode. I'll start with Leah and Rachel from Hashtag History for providing the first and third quotes. They just began their ninth season, and with each episode, they examine stories in the annals of history that deal with controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. With a cocktail in hand, Rachel and Leah lead their audience through the ins and outs of historical events and help us to better understand the people who made history, be it for better or worse. Whether it's Benedict Arnold, the Anastasia imposter, or the Heaven's Gate cult, there's no scandal in history that we can't benefit from their insight and perspective in their examination. Check them out by going to hashtag history, that's all one word, dash pod, dot com, or by searching for hashtag history wherever fine podcasts can be found. Next up, I'd like to thank Will from American History Geek, who gave voice to Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallison. Will is actually not an audio podcaster, but rather a video podcaster on YouTube. I discovered American History Geek quite appropriately through the American History Fanatics group on Facebook and was immediately drawn in, especially as the first video I watched was on the election of 1808. In a few short minutes, Will takes his audience through the who, what, when, where, and why of various subjects in American history, ranging from presidential elections, to the Culper spy ring, to the March on Washington for lesbian and gay rights. Just go to YouTube and search for American History Geek to check out the great content that Will has created thus far, and I personally can't wait to see what he has in store for the election of 1812, definitely one of the more interesting elections of the early republic. Last but certainly not least, I'd like to thank my husband Alex for giving voice to our outgoing president. I couldn't have made it through the work on the Jefferson presidency without his support, in addition to all the support of listeners and fellow podcasters over the last couple of years. To Rachel, Leah, Will, and Alex, thanks so much for being a part of this penultimate episode. Here's to much more great history podcasting ahead. With that said, let's dive in. The Federalist Party going into 1808 was in poor shape to mount an opposition to any Democratic-Republican candidate for president. Since 1800, a few prominent Federalists had attempted to pull together more of a national network of support, but each effort had fizzled out, and the number of Federalists in Congress continued to diminish, further undermining any efforts at organizing at anything larger than the state or local level. With the Embargo Act in place, and the complaints of merchants growing, though, some Federalists began to wonder whether this provided an opening for the party to regain some of its lost strength. 
On February 8th, a meeting of prominent Federalists was held in New York to consider whether it might be politically advantageous to support the candidacy of Vice President George Clinton, despite the fact that he was the Democratic Republican. Likely, they had in mind previous Federalist support for Clinton's predecessor in office, Aaron Burr, also nominally a Democratic Republican. There was a staunch opponent to that idea at the meeting on the 8th, though. Former U.S. Minister to Britain and Federalist candidate for Vice President in 1804, Rufus King. King gathered New York Federalist leaders at his townhouse on March 6th and managed to rally support for the idea of continuing to put forward Federalist candidates in upcoming elections in the state. Though the Democratic-Republicans ultimately retained a majority, there were gains made by Federalists at the state level in that election cycle, mostly due to opposition to Jefferson's embargo. This improvement in fortune in the Empire State kindled hopes for larger aims. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Meanwhile, the Jefferson administration continued to struggle with embarrassments on various fronts. Our old friend, General James Wilkinson, was back in the spotlight at the beginning of 1808. Despite the president's staunch support for the general, as discussed in episode 3.36, Wilkinson's enemies continued their assault after the trial of Aaron Burr concluded, including that character that we've all become acquainted with in this series, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. Randolph, in his denouncements of Wilkinson, had called him, quote-unquote, a rogue, which prompted the passionate Wilkinson to challenge the congressman to a duel. Randolph's response, quote, In you, sir, I recognize no right to hold me accountable for my public or private opinion of your character. I cannot descend to your level. Ouch. Wilkinson, stung by this further insult, then proceeded to put up posters around Washington, D.C. stating, quote, In justice to my character, I denounce John Randolph, member of Congress, to the world as a prevaricating, base, calumniating scoundrel. Character assassination politics is nothing new under the sun, dear friends, and one can only imagine the embarrassment of the administration at this conduct by the commanding general of the U.S. Army. Meanwhile, moves in Congress towards an official investigation of Wilkinson's potential treason against the U.S. government continue to pace, with even the debate over the Embargo Act being suspended at one point to address the matter. Preemptively, however, President Jefferson announced on January 2nd that he was appointing, quote, a three-man military board to investigate the general's conduct. As stated by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, since its membership consisted of three colonels whose careers could be made or broken by the general, it was widely criticized as inadequate. For those who have been following the career of General Wilkinson through our narrative, you will not likely be surprised by the fact that, on June 28th, the Board of Inquiry concluded that, quote, there is no evidence of Brigadier General James Wilkinson having, at any time, 
received a pension from the Spanish government, or of his having received money from the government of Spain or any of its officers or agents for corrupt purposes. And the court has no hesitation in saying that, as far as his conduct has been developed by this inquiry, he appears to have discharged the duties of his station with honor to himself and fidelity to his country. And thus, Spanish Agent 13 remained as the commanding general of the U.S. Army. But the Jefferson administration and the Madison candidacy were both spared the embarrassment of that truth becoming public knowledge at the time. Meanwhile, in the wake of the Burr acquittal, Senator William Branch Giles, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, put forward a bill that would expand the definition of treason to have Burr's demonstrated actions constitute as such. As noted by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, taking Giles' proposal and applying it to a larger scope of American history, quote, Under this definition, not only would the Southern secessionists of 1861 have been guilty of treason on several counts, but so would have been the participants in the Whiskey Rebellion and anybody else who forcibly resisted the general execution of any public law. Though the Senate passed the bill by a vote of 18 to 10, the House did not act on it, and thus it did not become law. That this came from the party who, 10 years prior, had opposed the Alien and Sedition Acts had rather of a note of irony to it, and would be attacked even by fellow Democratic Republicans who felt that Congress was attempting to usurp authority that it did not have, much along the same lines as Federalists had done while in power. The division in the party continued to grow, especially as the presidential election drew ever closer. Though the presumed Democratic-Republican candidate, Secretary of State James Madison was faced with staunch opposition from within the party. I doubt it will come as much surprise to longtime listeners of the podcast to find none other than Representative John Randolph of Roanoke as one in that number. Following the results of the Congressional Caucus and the Virginia Caucuses, Randolph worked to organize other Democratic-Republican colleagues in Congress, and on February 28th, this group of 17 released their address titled, To the People of the United States. This message drew on the National Intelligencer's recent endorsement of Madison and turned what had been pointed to as character strengths for Madison into weaknesses. The protesters asserted that, in the current time of crisis, the presidency, quote, should be directed to a man eminently calculated by his tried energy and talents to conduct the nation with firmness and wisdom through the perils which surround it. Instead, it was being directed to Madison. The protest continued that, quote, We ask for energy, and we are told of his moderation. We ask for talents, and the reply is his unassuming merit. We ask what were his services in the cause of public liberty, and we are directed to the pages of the Federalist, written in conjunction with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, in which the most extravagant of their doctrines are maintained and propagated. We ask for consistency as a Republican, standing forth to stem the torrent of oppression, which once threatened to overwhelm the liberties of the country. We ask for that high and honorable sense of duty, which would at all times turn with loathing and abhorrence from any compromise with fraud and speculation. We ask in vain. 
Randolph and his allies, however, were not the only ones in opposition to Madison's candidacy. Support for Madison struggled in Pennsylvania in early 1808, and Representative James Sloan, Democratic-Republican from New Jersey, did not help matters in late February when he withdrew his support from Madison in favor of Clinton and entered a motion for the capital of the United States to be moved to Philadelphia. Oh yes, folks were still kicking around that idea, and it was a subtle means of criticizing the idea of electing yet another Virginian to the presidency. In the two decades thus far since the ratification of the Constitution, only four years had seen a non-Virginian as the chief executive of the nation. Thus, when a Democratic-Republican quote-unquote harmony convention was held in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in early March to decide on presidential electors, the slate chosen was quote, carefully chosen from the two domestic factions, and no opinion was expressed on presidential candidates. This revived hopes for the supporters of Clinton and former U.S. Minister to Britain James Monroe and gave more hope to the Federalists that the split in the Democratic-Republican ranks, along with the growing opposition to the embargo, may give them an opening. A Federalist meeting held at Mechanics Hall in New York City, New York, on March 28th was beyond capacity. Senator Timothy Pickering, Federalist from Massachusetts, had published a letter outlining not only, quote, his lack of confidence in particular measures of the general government, but in the government itself, and asserting that, quote, nothing but the sense of the commercial states clearly and emphatically expressed will save them from ruin. Younger members of the party in Massachusetts, including former Representative Harrison Gray Otis, began to consult with more seasoned leaders to plan a strategy for doing outreach to Federalists in other parts of the nation to coordinate efforts and to possibly plan for a meeting of Federalists from various states later in the year. The longer the embargo went on, and the more efforts that the Jefferson administration made to enforce it, the stronger the Federalists seemed to get. By early April 1808, President Jefferson was suffering from one of his periodic debilitating headaches that came at times of extreme stress. This did not stop him from acting, though, when reports started coming to the President's house, quote, of armed resistance to the embargo laws on Lake Champlain. Jefferson, after consulting with his cabinet, issued a proclamation on April 19th, quote, calling for the use of armed vessels manned by volunteers, for the assistance, if need be, of the local marshal and a posse raised by him. And finally, if the opposition should require it, for a request to the governor to publish a presidential proclamation that was provided him and to call on the militia to enforce the embargo on Lake Champlain. As Lake Champlain is between the states of New York and Vermont, proclamations calling out the militia were sent to both governors, and a few weeks later, both, quote, issued the proclamation and each dispatched a small body of militiamen to the Champlain district. Sensing that public mood was shifting, Congress took action in April to give the president limited authority to suspend the Embargo Act while they were out of session. At the same time, it passed an act providing for greater enforcement of the embargo. While this seems contradictory, it can be understood through the lens of politics. Most Democratic-Republican leaders in Congress, and indeed all in the House, were up for re-election. This was a way of hedging their bets while out on the campaign trail and also shifting the responsibility 
and, if need be, the blame on the outgoing president. With that, on April 25, 1808, the first congressional session of the 10th U.S. Congress ended, and Jefferson and his administration was left to find their way forward for the next few months. The president may have hoped for peace in Europe to help to quell the current crisis in relations with Great Britain, but all the news coming from that side of the Atlantic seemed to point to continued turmoil. We discussed last episode the French invasion of Portugal and the presence of large numbers of French troops in and around Spain. The Spanish Prince of Peace, Manuel de Godoy, in negotiating the Treaty of Fontainebleau with the French imperial government, thought that he was gaining an advantage for both him and his nation, but Emperor Napoleon had no intention of living up to the terms of the treaty. He had begun in February 1806 to draft a master plan to extend his empire across Europe and beyond to other parts of the globe. And as 1808 approached, there were two key targets in mind as the next on the agenda for conquest. The Papal States in Central Italy had long enjoyed a position of strategic and spiritual authority, but to Napoleon, Pope Pius VII just posed another threat to his authority and must be brought to heel. Thus, on April 1st, he ordered the Pope to enter into a military alliance with France and for the Papal States to close its ports to the British as well as detain any British diplomatic officials in their territory. The Pope, however, didn't have a chance to even respond before Napoleon marched troops across the border and occupied Rome on April 2nd. Pope Pius was allowed to remain on his throne, but it was clear that he was in the subordinate role in Napoleonic Italy. At the same time as the French emperor was putting this part of the plan into motion, he was also actively engaged in an invasion of Spain. While Spain was the larger prize, there was one other key strategic position on the Iberian Peninsula that could finally turn the tide and give Napoleon an advantage against the British, Gibraltar. Then, as now, Gibraltar played a key role in the British Royal Navy's projection of power in both the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. At that time, it was also a key port in the chain of British trade, and if Napoleon wanted to decimate British naval and commercial power, he knew he had to take Gibraltar before he could begin to set his sights on British holdings in the West Indies and India. As described by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen, quote, In breadth, scope, and imagination, the scheme was dazzling, involving hundreds of thousands of troops and many dozens of ships of the line that France and Spain, in fact, no longer possessed. But among other things, Bonaparte had somehow managed to forget about the English Navy, which controlled the Seven Seas, and of course the technical and logistical impossibility of such a worldwide operation. Without Talleyrand there to attempt to keep him in check, Napoleon's surging megalomania was clearly out of hand. On February 16, 1808, the invasion of Spain began as French troops took the city of Barcelona, Figueras, Pamplona, and San Sebastian. Godoy had started to see the writing on the wall on February 1st when the French announced their intention of taking all of Portugal in violation of the Treaty of Fontainebleau, which was to secure one-third of the nation for Spain and one-third as Godoy's own personal fiefdom. His warnings to Spanish King Carlos IV had come too little, 
too late. Thus, Godoy had to make backup plans. The Spanish court could withdraw and regroup in Andalusia, and should worse come to worst, they could follow the example of the Portuguese royal family and proceed in exile either to the island of Mallorca or to the Spanish colonies in the Western Hemisphere. Meanwhile, the Spanish heir to the throne, Prince Fernando, made overtures to Napoleon about joining forces to overthrow his father, the king. Nothing would come of this, however, and the Spanish royal family began to make plans to evacuate to the Port of Cadiz as the French forces drew ever closer, despite assurances from King Carlos, quote, that the army of my dear ally, the emperor of the French, is crossing my kingdom with peaceful and friendly intentions. On March 17th, as rumors of these evacuation plans reached the public, riots broke out and Godoy's palace was attacked. In an attempt to quell the uprisings, King Carlos removed Godoy, quote, from his duties as generalissimo and admiral, granting him retirement to wherever he sees fit. The chaos, however, gave Napoleon the opening he needed, and on the pretext of protecting the Spanish royal family, he directed his forces under the command of Marshal Murat to take Madrid. Meanwhile, the upheaval continued, and on March 19th, Carlos announced that he was abdicating his throne in favor of his son, who was proclaimed Fernando Siete. Crowds cheered the downfall of Godoy and the ascension of Fernando. But a few days later, Carlos complicated the situation with a public announcement that he had been forced to abdicate, and, now that he was in a better position, was declaring the abdication null and void. Further, he appealed to Napoleon, of all people, to help. The French emperor was more than glad for the invitation to meddle in Spanish affairs. Napoleon invited the Spanish royals and Godoy to Bayonne in southwestern France to mediate the situation, and they promptly arrived as summoned on April 30th. Once Bonaparte had Carlos in his grasp, he convinced him to secretly confirm his abdication, but with the caveat that Napoleon would quote-unquote temporarily be given authority over Spain until a solution to the present crisis could be found. With this ace up his sleeve, Napoleon then began to work on Fernando, with the young royal agreeing in a secret meeting on May 6th to return the throne to his father. With that, Napoleon's web was complete. As soon as Fernando agreed to relinquish his claim to the throne, Napoleon produced the agreement he had made with Carlos and claimed Spain as his own, as there was now neither a king nor a crown prince. The former royals, as well as Godoy, would be put under house arrest, and Napoleon proclaimed his brother Joseph as the new king of, quote, Spain and the Indies. Napoleon may have felt that all was worked out, but the Spanish people had other ideas. On May 2nd, an uprising involving tens of thousands of people started in Madrid, and by early June, it had developed into a national uprising against the Bonapartes. Simultaneously, uprisings against French authority began in Portugal. May saw the assassination of three French military governors in Spain, and the Spanish rebels appealed to the British for support. The appointed Spanish king, Joseph, arrived in Madrid in late July, but after hearing of the surrender of a French force of 23,000 men to the Spanish at Balian, two days after his arrival, 
Joseph fled the city, northward bound. We'll leave things in Spain here for the moment, but just know that these developments would have far-reaching ramifications, not just for U.S. foreign policy, but for the future of the Western Hemisphere as a whole. For the resistance against Bonapartist authority would not stop in the Iberian Peninsula. Napoleon, meanwhile, was willing to use geopolitics to his advantage. French Foreign Minister Jean-Baptiste de Nompère de Champagny informed the U.S. Minister to France, John Armstrong, on February 3, 1808, that if the U.S. were to go to war with Britain, the French Emperor would support the Americans if they launched a proactive assault into the Floridas to avoid those colonies being taken by the British. If the U.S. was willing to enter into an alliance with France, Napoleon had a further carrot to offer. He would work on behalf of the Americans to settle the western boundary of Louisiana. Armstrong, however, was not born yesterday. By this point, he had been at his post in Paris for over three years. He knew that the imperial government would promise the moon, but fail to deliver. Thus, he pressed back on Champagny the need not only for assurances on these promises, but also noted how the French had violated American neutral rights over the past few years in much the same way as the British. Why should the emperor's government be trusted any more than that of George III? When he reported these communications back to Secretary of State Madison, Armstrong warned his superiors in Washington that they should be cautious about these new overtures from the French. As Armstrong wrote Madison on February 15th, quote, with the one hand, they offer us the blessings of equal alliance against Great Britain. With the other, they menace us with war if we do not accept this kindness. And with both, they pick our pockets with all imaginable diligence, dexterity, and impudence. The administration would agree with Armstrong's assessment and not act on this offer from Napoleon, in part because it had more than enough to occupy its attention in 1808. At a time when opposition to Jefferson was increasing by the day, the final year in his term found a new ally rallying to his defense, Senator John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts. As we discussed in episode 3.37, Adams had supported the Embargo Act, knowing that it would cost him support back at home, and the criticism was not long in coming. Arch-Federalists in Massachusetts attacked Adams for being under the thumb of the dreaded Jefferson and circulated a letter from the Governor General of Nova Scotia, which claimed that Napoleon had entered into a secret agreement with Jefferson to conquer the British provinces of North America. Adams went straight to the source and asked Jefferson about it in a private meeting on March 15th. The president naturally denied the rumor and expressed his belief that Britain was as reluctant to have a war developed between the two nations as he was. With these assurances, Adams drafted a lengthy public letter defending, quote, the embargo as a means of preserving peace while preparing for war. This only further infuriated New England Federalists, while Democratic Republicans in the region came to Adams' defense. His father, the former President Adams, seeing the political maelstrom that his son was caught in the midst of, wrote to him in early 1808 that, quote, your situation you think critical. I think it is clear, plain, and obvious. You are supported by no party. You have too honest a heart, too independent a mind, and too brilliant talents to be sincerely and confidentially trusted by any man 
who is under the dominion of party maxims or party feelings. Return to your professorship at Harvard, but above all, to your office as a lawyer. Devote yourself to your profession and the education of your children. In late May, Senator Adams's hand was forced as Federalists in the Massachusetts General Legislature put forward a motion to elect James Lloyd Jr. as the next U.S. Senator to fill the seat currently occupied by Adams. It was bad enough that he had not been re-elected, but the action was taken six months prior to when the vote would normally come in order to serve as a formal rebuke of the lapsed Federalist. Rather than wait around as a lame duck, Adams resigned from the U.S. Senate on June 8th, and Lloyd was chosen to succeed him in the vacancy. Though Adams returned to private life for the remainder of the Jefferson presidency, I think we all know that this is not the last that we will be seeing of this outgoing senator. JQA was the rare New Englander still in support of the embargo. The Democratic-Republican governor of Massachusetts, John Sullivan, wrote to Jefferson in early April of Federalist schemes, quote, to divide the nation and establish in this part of the hemisphere a different form of government, under the protection of Great Britain. You will laugh at this, and so would Southern members of Congress, but their destruction will come upon them as a whirlwind. Civil war must fill the interval between anarchy and despotism, and who can then be secure or happy? However, the problems didn't stop in the Northeast. In early June, Jefferson learned of an unfavorable ruling in the Federal Circuit Court in South Carolina against some of the administration's enforcement efforts, a ruling which was issued by none other than Supreme Court Justice William Johnson, one of Jefferson's own appointees to the high court. Federalist victories at the polls were continuing to have an uptick as the year went on. Meanwhile, pro-Clinton forces in New York continued to push the vice president's candidacy as spring gave way to summer and even made efforts to influence city and county proceedings in neighboring Pennsylvania. In the Keystone State, however, county resolutions from Democratic-Republican meetings came one after the other, endorsing the ticket of James Madison for president and George Clinton for vice president. The Federalists, meanwhile, seemed increasingly to be rallying around the same ticket from 1804. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina as president and Rufus King of New York as vice president. The ticket would not fly quite as far under the radar as it did in the previous election, though, and with a more visible face to the opposition, some Democratic-Republicans who had been apathetic or wavering began to turn their support to Madison. Finally, in the third week in August, a meeting of 35 Federalist leaders representing eight states gathered in New York City and formally renominated Pinckney and King as the party's ticket. This action while not presenting a viable threat to Madison, did have an important impact. It put a nail in the coffin of the idea that some Clintonians still held of building a coalition of disaffected Democratic-Republicans and Federalists to deny Madison the presidency. As fall neared, there was no denying that support for Clinton's candidacy for the top seat had continued on a steady decline. Despite the growing uproar over the embargo, it looked increasingly likely that Jefferson's closest advisor would be his successor. A bright spot in a difficult year politically for the president, to be sure, but it was not the only one to be found. 1808 provided multiple opportunities for Jefferson to don the role of proud grandfather. That summer, 
his daughter Martha gave birth to her ninth child, who was named Benjamin Franklin Randolph. A couple of months later, in mid-September, Jefferson played host to the wedding of his 17-year-old granddaughter, Anne Carey Randolph. Anne had been close to Thomas over the years, sharing his passion for gardening, so one can imagine his emotions at seeing her being wed to Charles Lewis Bankhead. He also had the joy of being accompanied by his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, upon his return to the President's house in Washington in October. Jeff, as his grandson was known to the family, would not be staying long with the President, though, for he was set to continue on to Philadelphia to start his studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Jefferson had pushed for his grandson Jeff to pursue further education, having dreams of his namesake becoming, quote, an educated man of science like him. Ever the doting grandfather, Jefferson had insisted on paying for Jeff's education, despite Martha Jefferson Randolph's expressed concerns about both her father's shaky financial state and her son's lack of proper preparation for advanced university studies. Nothing doing, Jefferson had his way, and after a good visit with Jeff, he sent the young man on his way to Philadelphia. As the year went on, the president's mind increasingly turned home and one can imagine him counting down the days. There was, however, one addition to the family that went unmentioned by the president in his correspondence that year. In May, Sally Hemings gave birth to her final child, a son named Thomas Easton Hemings, a name that the child shared with Thomas Jefferson's cousin and friend, Thomas Easton Randolph. This was, of course, nine months after one of the president's visits to his home, Monticello. With his return to Washington on October 22, 1808, Jefferson was officially in the home stretch. His next departure from the president's house to return to Virginia would be for good, but there were still over four months and an election to go. As was the case at this point in American history, the means of choosing electors was inconsistent, as was the date that electors cast their ballots. Some states based the choice of electors on popular vote at large, while others relied on a district-based system of popular vote to choose electors, while the rest of the states delegated the task of choosing electors to the state legislature, adding an extra layer between the voting populace and the president. Massachusetts had actually changed its policy to allow the state legislature to choose the electors versus 1804 when they were chosen by popular vote by district. With so much variance in the system of election, it was difficult to know that fall exactly how the election was going. As we heard in one of the opening quotes, Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin, in particular, was concerned about the impact of the Embargo Act and the lack of a resolution of foreign affairs on Madison's chances. As members of Congress filtered back into Washington in preparation for the short session leading up to the inauguration on March 4th, Samuel Harrison Smith of the National Intelligencer gathered what information he could about how the electoral vote was going, and reported in early November that Madison seemed to be at 106 electoral votes, which was 17 more votes than was needed, past the goalpost. Still, with infighting and allegations of Madison being a pawn of Napoleon and rumors of conspiracy and dirty dealings abound, President Jefferson took a step to convince folks that his Secretary of State was a trusted and worthy successor. On November 7th, he released to Congress a slew of diplomatic correspondence, which was subsequently printed in newspapers around the country. As noted by historian Irving Brandt, quote, Voters read for the first time Madison's declaration 
that the Emperor's Berlin Decree, as interpreted, violated both international law and treaty rights. They read his reply to the insolence of Champagny that no independent and honorable nation could be guided by demands that meant bending to the views of France against her enemy. That put an end to delusions created by artful insinuations about connivance with France. While awaiting the official counting of the electoral votes by Congress, President Jefferson still had to abide by his constitutional duty and thus, on November 8th, sent his eighth and final annual message to Congress. He admitted at the beginning his erstwhile desire to have been able, quote, to inform you that the belligerent nations whose disregard of neutral rights has been so destructive to our commerce have become awakened to the duty and true policy of revoking their unrighteous edicts. Unfortunately, the news that he had for Congress was not as such, and he had worked closely with Madison and Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin to craft this culminating message in the twilight of his term. The majority of the message recounted the details of his administration's work in the past year, but the last paragraph is rather poignant for our purposes and reads as follows. Quote, Availing myself of this, the last occasion which will occur of addressing the two houses of the legislature at their meeting, I cannot omit the expression of my sincere gratitude for the repeated proofs of confidence manifested to me by themselves and their predecessors since my call to the administration and the many indulgences experienced at their hands. These same grateful acknowledgments are due to my fellow citizens generally whose support has been my great encouragement under all embarrassments. In the transaction of their business, I cannot have escaped error. It is incident to our imperfect nature. But I may say with truth, my errors have been of the understanding, not of intention, and that the advancement of their rights and interests has been the constant motive for every measure. On these considerations, I solicit their indulgence. Looking forward with anxiety to future destinies, I trust that in their steady character, unshaken by difficulties, in their love of liberty, obedience to law, and support of the public authorities, I see a sure guarantee of the permanence of our republic. And, retiring from the charge of their affairs, I carry with me the consolation of a firm persuasion that heaven has in store for our beloved country long ages to come of prosperity and happiness. It is particularly poignant considering that 10 days after the annual message was sent to Congress, Jefferson was confined to the president's house with a diseased jaw for six weeks. For the last few months of his presidency, Jefferson, in essence, took his hand off the wheel and did nothing to ameliorate the chaos that ensued. Even Dumas Malone noted that this ailment of his jaw came conveniently around the same time that, quote, he received Gallatin's written suggestion that he speak more decisively respecting the embargo, and that, to that point, Jefferson had not reported any issues with his mouth or jaw. As noted by Jefferson biographer John Bowles, quote, a weary Jefferson could hardly wait to hand over the reins of power. While he had some things to which to look forward, such as the fact that his grand and long-lasting architectural project Monticello 
was nearing completion just in time for his return, there was still so much with which to be concerned. Jefferson engaged in an inventory of his furniture and belongings at the president's house and worked to get his finances, or, more accurately, his personal debts, in order. It had already been decided, after a brief flirtation of the idea of the president's youngest sister, Anna Marks, coming in to help him administer his domestic affairs, that his daughter Martha would serve as mistress of Monticello. Martha herself had dispelled the alternate plan, dismissing her aunt as, quote, totally incompetent to the business. The servants have no sort of respect for her. Martha knew her father in terms of his habits and routines. She could anticipate his needs, as well as help him to manage with a keen eye for economy. The outgoing president, meanwhile, was concerned about the impact of his actions in his final days in office on his successor, whoever that may be. The suspense on who that was officially ended on February 8, 1809, when the Electoral College votes were counted in a joint session of Congress. The result, however, was of little surprise by that point. With 122 of a total of 176 possible votes, James Madison overwhelmingly was chosen as the fourth president of the United States. Now, in that, there are a few interesting points. The Federalist candidate Charles Coastworth Pinckney received 47 electoral votes, while Vice President Clinton received six votes from New York electors. In addition, there was one Kentucky elector who just didn't cast a ballot. For Vice President, the Federalist electors were in lockstep and delivered King the same 47 electoral votes they had awarded to Pinckney at the top of the ticket. On the Democratic-Republican side, however, votes were all over the place. Clinton came out on top with 113 votes, but three of the New York electors who voted for Clinton opted to reverse the ticket and cast three ballots for James Madison as vice president, while the other three carried out the idea for a Clinton-Monroe ticket. Meanwhile, the six Vermont electors voted for the governor of New Hampshire, John Langdon, as their choice for vice president over Clinton. At the end of the day, though, the choice was Madison and Clinton in that order. In the interim, there was still one looming issue that the 10th Congress was not willing to leave to the next session, the embargo. Merchants had continued their quest to find ways around the embargo, with even John Jacob Astor using a Chinese merchant as a proxy to approach Jefferson for an exception. Supposedly, the Chinese merchant was returning home with property worth forty dollars to $50,000, but in fact, the scheme was for the ship to travel to China and return with a cargo of goods to sell in the U.S. The ship sailed before the plan was discovered and returned after the end of the embargo, so Astor was able to profit from the $200,000 worth of cargo that the ship brought back. As the months went on, though, the merchants weren't the only ones chafing at the embargo. State governors were feeling increasing pressure, particularly in the Northeast, and the administration had to do what they could to keep them in line in order to help with enforcement efforts. Federalist newspapers likewise ramped up their efforts in attacking the embargo in the summer and fall of 1808, publishing not just essays critical of the law, but also poems satirizing both the embargo and the president. One in particular mocked his interest in the natural sciences, bidding him to, quote, go search with curious eyes for horned frogs amongst the wild waste of Louisianian bogs, 
or where Ohio rolls his turbid stream. Dig for huge bones, thy glory and thy theme, but quit to abler hands the helm of state, nor image ruin on thy country's fate. Petitions were also sent to the president about the pressure that communities were under and calling for the end of the embargo. If citizens were hoping for the president to intercede in this matter, though, they were quite mistaken. By December 27th, Jefferson was writing that, quote, I've thought it right to take no part myself in proposing measures, the execution of which will devolve on my successor. I'm therefore chiefly an unmeddling listener to what others say. The members of Congress, however, had found themselves likewise under pressure to do something about the embargo when they had returned home while Congress was in recess. And so, when they returned to Washington, numerous members were ready to act. Federalists from New England made the first move, putting forward resolutions in the House to completely repeal the embargo. Democratic Republicans were able to block action on those resolutions, while, over in the Senate, a similar resolution put forward by Senator James Hillhouse, Federalist from Connecticut, was voted down by a party-line vote. Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, realizing that something had to give, drafted three resolutions, which he then passed on to Representative George Campbell, Democratic-Republican from Tennessee, who was at that point the chairman of a special committee named to consider the parts of the president's annual message related to the embargo and foreign affairs. Gallatin proposed, quote, the closing of American ports to the armed vessels of both France and Great Britain, as well as, quote, the prohibition of all imports from both countries. Though a resolution to build up the nation's defense was promptly pushed to the side and ignored, the other parts of Gallatin's proposal were used to draft a new bill, dubbed the Non-Intercourse Bill, which Campbell's committee put forward to the full House the day after Christmas. By stepping back from the full embargo and instead focusing in on relations with Britain and France, it was hoped that this would be a less bitter pill to swallow while still working towards the aims that had initially prompted the embargo. However, by the time this bill was put forward, Congress was embroiled in debate over another bill designed to strengthen enforcement of the current Embargo Act. Senator William Branch Childs, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, had introduced his force bill to the Senate on December 12th, which was described by historian Tom Armstrong as, quote, the harshest legislation to date in terms of enforcing the embargo. It, quote, was aimed at smuggling, allowing federal revenue agents to confiscate all goods suspected of being shipped in violation of the embargo. If mistakes were made in the enforcement of this law by the agents, they were to be exempt from any lawsuits. Despite the uproar from Federalists as well as some Democratic-Republicans, the force bill ultimately passed the Senate on December 21st in a 20-7 to vote. It was then sent on to the House, which approved it by a vote of 71-32 to on January 5, 1809. Jefferson then proceeded to sign it into law on January 9th. Rather than help the situation, the force bill only served as a lightning rod on which critics of the embargo focused their attacks. It was seen particularly by a number of folks in New England as being, quote, a pro-French and anti-British measure, and the fact that this bill would increase the authority of the Treasury Department not only infuriated Federalists, but gave some Democratic-Republican leaders pause. 
Treasury Secretary Gallatin was already disliked by some influential Democratic Republicans due to his increasing assertion of himself into political matters and his early support of Madison for the presidency, while others felt that Gallatin's austerity measures had made the nation weaker and less prepared should war come. Senators Michael Lieb, Democratic Republican from Virginia, and Samuel Smith, Democratic Republican from Maryland, as well as Representative Wilson Carey Nicholas, Democratic Republican from Virginia, in particular, were critical of Gallatin and the leadership that was coming out of the Jefferson administration. If they weren't going to see a change in leadership in the executive branch, the Democratic-Republican discontents at least saw a path to being able to exert their influence on policy through Congress. On February 3rd, the House of Representatives voted to repeal the embargo with the repeal effective as of March 4th, the end of Jefferson's second term. That same day, Democratic Republicans from the Senate and House caucused to determine how they could move forward together on action on the embargo. However, this caucus would only highlight the growing divides between the factions of the party. Northern members were insistent that the embargo should be jettisoned as soon as possible, while Southern members first sought a declaration of war on Great Britain to be linked to the embargo repeal. Then, when it was clear that was a non-starter, push for a delay in the repeal of the embargo to avoid embarrassing the outgoing president. Ultimately, the caucus concluded without a consensus, and on February 14th, when the repeal bill from the House came up for a vote in the Senate, that body likewise approved the repeal. However, with the repeal came a new non-intercourse resolution, which, as before, would forbid trade with Britain and France with the date of May 20th being given for the new act to go into effect. This new non-intercourse bill also, quote, gave the president authority to reopen trade with France or England if either should cease to violate neutral rights. The embargo repeal and the non-intercourse act passed both houses of Congress at the end of February, and Jefferson signed them into law on March 1st in one of his last official acts as president. Though his presidency was ending with a refutation of the policy that had been, in part, his brainchild, it seems that Jefferson was more concerned about the brighter prospects ahead for him personally after March 4th than he was about the legacy he was leaving with his departure from the role of chief executive. As Jefferson wrote a few months prior to his departure, quote, As the moment of my retirement approaches, I become more anxious for its arrival and to begin at length to pass what yet remains to me of life and health in the bosom of my family and neighbors, and in communication with my friends, undisturbed by political concerns or passions. After spending the better part of a decade at the head of the government, and the decade prior as the head of a political movement, the champion of revolution had lost his passion along the way. Indeed, Though Jefferson had, in his first term, involved himself in the work on the president's house, much as he had that of his own home, Monticello, in the second term, his interest even in that building project had waned. Jefferson had made the house, quote, a noble symbol to be viewed from a lofty distance, but the interior was still rather barren and cold. He had brought some extra furnishings from Monticello, but had done little more than provide the bare necessities during his tenure. Jefferson had never wanted the president's house, quote, to become a social and political space. Instead, it served as a private refuge into which only a select few were invited. 
As described by historian Catherine Algor, quote, while on their face, his dinners reflected the simpler, more easygoing American style he was cultivating. Jefferson was a man who needed to control his world, and the configuration of his dinner parties reflected that need. The small number of guests and their close clustering at a round table invited intimacy, but also foreclosed the ability to converse out of Jefferson's hearing. His second term, however, had been a time when much felt out of his control. Indeed, one of the president's final initiatives while in office, the appointment of his former secretary, William Short, on a special diplomatic mission to St. Petersburg to open a direct dialogue with Russian Tsar Alexander I, had been rejected by the Democratic-Republican-led Senate on February 27th. With this final insult, he was more than ready to return to his mountain in Virginia, a world in which he was completely in control. As he wrote to Pierre Dupont on March 2nd, 1809, quote, Nature intended me for the tranquil pursuits of science by rendering them my supreme delight. But the enormities of the times in which I have lived have forced me to take a part in resisting them and to commit myself on the boisterous ocean of political passions. I leave everything in the hands of men so able to take care of them that if we are destined to meet misfortunes, it will be because no human wisdom could avert them. The future would be what it would be, but it would no longer be the responsibility of Thomas Jefferson to guide his nation towards its destiny. He prepared a farewell message to the citizens of Washington, D.C. Then, on Saturday, March 4th, he and his grandson Jeff, who had come down from Philadelphia for the occasion, rode together to the U.S. Capitol to witness the inauguration of Jefferson's successor. As you can imagine, we'll have much more to say about that inauguration once we're in the Madison presidency series. But here is where we'll end our look at the Jefferson presidency. Next episode, we'll examine Thomas Jefferson's life after he left office. We will have a Q&A episode to wrap things up where I'll answer any remaining questions you may have about Jefferson, his administration, his life and career, or anything else we've covered in this series. Feel free to submit your questions via email to presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can send them to me through social media. I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. again, all one word. You can find source notes for this episode on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You can also find links to the work of our intro quote readers there as well. Thanks so much again to Leah, Rachel, and Will for providing intro quotes for this episode. And be sure to check out their work as soon as you're done with this episode. Thanks also to my husband Alex for giving voice to Jefferson in the intro. Special thanks as well to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this series. Special thanks as well to Alex Van Rose for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Alex's audio editing assistance with your podcast, I've included a link to his Fiverr page on the Source Notes page for this episode. I'd also like to thank all of my patrons. Matthew, Michelle, Jeremy, Ike, Joshua, Eric, Michael, Howard, Kara, and Scott. 
Their generosity pays for the podcast hosting fees, as well as additional resources, including editing and source materials, to continue us along this journey. Finally, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. It's been a long journey from 1801 to 1809, but I hope it's been as enlightening and enriching of an experience for you as it has been for me. Here's to the journey ahead. Until then, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.